What we've been seeing every week, pretty much, as we've been working our way through Hebrews, is it's a book written to people who are very much beaten down by the circumstances of life. Really, it's designed for it from cover to cover, from beginning to end, to help its readers have what it takes to face all the difficulties, the challenges, the pressures of life, and get through them all. And so, uh, if you're here today, and for whatever reason, you are struggling to keep going. I don't know, maybe there are friends or or family members who are just trying to kind of pull you away from following Jesus. Maybe you know the reality of what it is to live with physical pain or emotional pain or the pain of relationship breakdown and in all honesty, this is wearing you down. Uh, I don't know, maybe things feel pretty dark for you right now. You, you can't see a whole lot of light at the end of the tunnel. You, you just feel exhausted. Or, or maybe things haven't worked out in your life in the ways that you would have wanted or expected. Perhaps you've been praying for something for months, years even, and it still hasn't happened, and you kind of live with this deep sense of disappointment. I mean, life's tough at times, isn't it? Uh, Being a Christian suddenly isn't the easy option a lot of the time. Can any of you relate to this? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you can relate, the book of Hebrews, and particularly today's passage, is going to be highly relevant for us. As we're going to see, chapter 11 shows us that one of the keys to persevering through the difficulties and pressures, the challenges of life, is to be people of faith. Let's dive straight in and see what it is. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And then the writer launches into this pretty famous, remarkable list of people who live to please God with their faith. Now, just so you know, next time round Andy's going to be here and he's going to unpack the rest of the chapter. But this time round, I simply want to use these verses that we've just read to answer three very simple, very basic questions about faith. What is it? What does the God-pleasing kind look like? And how do you get it? Let's kick off with the first question. What exactly is faith? Now, people teaching on the whole subject of faith often come at it from an apologetic angle, giving you all kinds of reasons to believe in God and telling you why you should have faith. Sometimes people preach these really rousing sermons on faith and try to tell you that if you pray hard enough, if you can stir up enough faith, then God will make all your wildest dreams come true. I'm not here today to do either of those things. I'm not going to stand up here and try to convince you to have faith I'm here to tell you that you already have it. Everyone has it. You see, these first few verses in Hebrews 11, they alert us to this whole dynamic of faith that operates in everybody's life. 
I mean, just look at the first phrase here. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for. The reality is, everybody wants to hope for something. Everybody is searching for something that will get them up in the morning. Something is worth living for. Something they can give their lives to. Could be work, could be God, could be money, could be a relationship, could be sport, could be anything. Hope isn't just something that Christians are interested in. Hope is the quest of every human being. And whatever the source of hope ends up being, we put our faith in it, trusting that this thing will deliver for us everything we need for life. And so, pretty much everyone lives by faith. In fact, I suggest it's impossible not to. Everybody hooks their life to something. Everybody wants some certainty. Everybody wants to be sure. Everybody wants to have hope. Everybody lives by some set of beliefs or convictions somehow, some way. The question is, where are you putting your faith? Where are you putting it? If you're not quite sure, then a way to find out is to answer questions like these. To where does your money flow effortlessly? What have you worked hardest for in life? What's that thing that if you lost it, you would just struggle to go on living? What's the thing that if you could only get it, then life would be worth living? Answer those questions honestly And I reckon you'll go some way towards discovering what you are putting your faith in. The question then is, can the object of your faith stand up under the weight of your expectation on it? A guy called Ravi Zacharias said this, the loneliest moment of a person's life is when they get the thing they've always wanted only to realise it's not enough. Which I think is why verse 1 goes on to speak about an assurance in the things we're hoping for. It's like, we don't just want hope, we want to know that what we've hoped in is sure. We want to be convinced, don't we? We want to be confident that we're building our life on firm ground, that we're building our life on a sure and certain solid foundation. And pretty much that's what faith in God gives us. Faith for the Christian is looking at God and trusting Him for everything. While hope is looking at the future, very often staring into the unknown and trusting God for it. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. This deep assurance in God was strikingly evident in the ancients, these people of faith that are listed in the rest of the chapter, the likes of Abraham and Moses and David and so on. But here's the thing, these people weren't only commended for their faith in God, We're told in verse 6 that without having this kind of faith, it's actually impossible for any of us to 
please God. Which begs the question, what then does God-pleasing faith look like? Well, before launching into this list of faithful people, Hebrews takes us back to the creation of the world at the beginning of time. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now in my time, I've been known to cook the occasional meal, but what are people laughing for? It's not a laughing matter at all, very enjoyable, some of the time. I've been known to cook the occasional meal, but I've never, ever, ever spoken a meal into existence. In fact, there are times when I start out with this wonderful array of raw materials and the final product doesn't quite match the vision that I had in my mind when I started out. But the glorious and the amazing thing that we're told here is that God spoke the universe into being from nothing. And faith embraces all the implications of that. Because if God is creator, then by implication, everything that exists belongs to him. I don't know if any of you went to the Catalyst Festival and wandered along and saw the exhibition of Ali Gordon's artwork. Anyone going to look at that? Uh, I went along. Don't tell John, I've got to be honest. I didn't get it. I mean, it was very impressive, very good, I'm sure. I, I didn't have a clue what it was all about. Uh, maybe someone could explain to me later. But just imagine if, if I came along, looked at all this artwork, took a fancy to a couple of the pieces and removed them from the exhibition, took them home, put them on my wall and said they were mine. Oh, that would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? I didn't create them and so I have no claim to them. Now, here's my question. Do you go through life living as though you believe that there is a creator who owns everything? Listen, if God created the universe, then there is nothing in your life that ultimately belongs to you. Your possessions don't belong to you. Your relationships don't belong to you. Your gifts, your talents, your skills, they don't belong to you. Your finances don't belong to you. Your, your leisure time doesn't belong to you. It all belongs to God. You know, he didn't merely create it all and give it to you for you to use as you please. He created it all and in his grace gave it to you for you to use for his glory. If you're at school or if you're at college, think about it. Does the way you work reflect your belief in the existence of God? If you're a husband, does your belief in the existence of God shape the way you relate to your wife, wives, to your husband? If you're in business, is the way you conduct business shaped by a belief in the existence of God? Is your use of leisure time, what you do with your money, shaped by belief in God? I tell you, there is nothing more radical than to believe in your heart of hearts that God is the creator and the Lord of all things. Look, if you really believe this, it's got to begin to shape everything in your life because instead of you being at the center of the universe, God is now at the center of it all. And so everything in your life is now all about him. 
It's like, once you make that decision, once you put all your faith in God, I'll tell you, you've signed up for the most radical of existences, as illustrated by this Old Testament Hall of Fame that fills pretty much the rest of the chapter. Now, I had a decision to make at this point, whether to go really long or whether to go a bit shorter. And so I have prepared notes uh, on the likes of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. Got the notes at home. I haven't brought them today because for the sake of time, I'm simply going to zoom in on the example of Abraham that's given in this passage. And maybe Andy next time will pick up on the rest. I don't know. But verse 8, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, Even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. You know, before all of this started, Abraham had this great life in Ur of the Chaldees. His whole life was mapped out in front of him, safety, security, status, pretty much everything he needed. And then God comes along and calls him to leave it all and move somewhere else. Abraham asks, where? God says, I'll tell you later, just go. And so Abraham obediently sets out, finally arrives at this particular place. God says, okay, settle down here. Abraham says, well, for how long? God says, I'll tell you later. Later on, God says, okay, I'm going to give you a son now. Abraham says, how? I mean, I'm 99 years old. My wife is 90. God says, I'll tell you later, just wait. And finally, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your only son whom you love to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham says, why? God says, I'll tell you later, just start up going up the mountain. Now, what's all of that about? Here's what I think is going on here. Verse 10 says that Abraham was looking for a city with foundations. In other words, it would suggest he'd come to see that this world has no foundations. Now deep down, I think most of us have some kind of sense of this. I mean, the physicists will certainly tell you that. Second law of thermodynamics, everything's unraveling, everything's burning out, everything. What that means is, if the foundation of your life is your family, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but sooner or later they're all leaving you. I mean, one day, eventually, finally, will come the time when your kids are going to leave home. And without wishing to be morbid, eventually, every person you love will die. 
And I don't mean that insensitively. I know the pain personally of losing people I've cared for deeply. What I've come to see is that it comes for us all. Or if you build your life on your looks, even as we speak, you are wrinkling and sagging. (laughs) If you build your life on the latest intellectual cause, most of the beliefs taught in academia a hundred years ago are now looked on as outdated. I was at a university open day last weekend and they kind of listed all the Nobel Prize winners from their university over the decades and then they said that's the past, the academics we have now are on the cutting edge of new discovery. Most of the beliefs taught in academia a hundred years ago now looked on as outdated. Most of the things we believe today our great-grandchildren are going to be embarrassed we even believed. There are no intellectual foundations, no psychological foundations, no real emotional foundations, no physical foundations that will stand the test of time. So here's what God does to help us. Over and over and over again, you don't come into a crisis moment where to obey God means to lose something you ordinarily build your significance and security on. I think that's what God was doing with Abraham. It's like we build our lives on what our culture thinks. We build our lives on public opinion. We build our lives on family. We build our lives on economic security. And God is over and over and over again in our lives saying, please don't build your life there. That has no lasting foundation. Whatever you do, don't put the center of gravity of your life on that. Those things just cannot stand up under the weight of expectations that you're placing on them. Won't you shift your foundations to me, to my word, to my future? It's the only way, says God, that you'll be unshakable. It's the only way you'll have lasting assurance. It's the only way. Listen, either you are connected with God and everything is secure no matter how chaotic your life looks or you are not connected with God and nothing is secure no matter how orderly your life looks and God in his kindness is in the business of showing you that and so At every point in your life where to obey him, where to put him first means to walk away from something in the world on which you build your security, it's a mercy. Every time it's a mercy and it's an opportunity to become slowly, bit by bit, more and more a person of faith. I'm guessing some of you are thinking, well, sounds great in theory, but I can't do this. I mean, Jonathan, you you kind of lost me 20 minutes ago. Uh, I I could never be this kind of radical for God. This this sounds impossible. Could be for a number of reasons. First, could be, I'm afraid of trusting God. I'm afraid if I really lay down my life unconditionally before him, well, at some point he will let me down. Or maybe it's more a case, I'm afraid of trusting myself. I'm afraid if I give myself like this, I just won't be able to keep it up and I will fail. Maybe it's a combination of both, so I can't possibly do it. Which begs the third and final question. 
How then do you get this kind of faith? This kind of faith that is the only way to please God. How do you get it? Well, years before this was written, funnily enough, Abraham had the exact same question. Genesis 15, Abraham looks up to the sky and he says, oh Lord, how can I know? God makes all these promises to him, he says, how can I know? Which I think means, how do I trust you and how do I trust me? God's answer, cut a bunch of animals in half. Now we read that and we're thinking, what in the world are we talking about here? But Abraham immediately knew what was going on. Because back in those days, that's how you made a contract. That's how you made a covenant with somebody. If you were making a contract or a covenant with someone, you would cut an animal in half. And then both you and the other person would walk between the pieces of the animal and you would both say out loud the words of the contract. It's like by walking between the pieces, you were saying, this day I make this promise. And if I don't keep my promise, if I don't keep my word, may I be as this animal. Now let's face it, all of that sounds ever so slightly bizarre, doesn't it? But back then, all through the Near East, it was a way of identifying with a dead animal and saying in this legally binding way, I'm not going to go back on my word. And so Abraham starts to cut these animals in half. And he kind of figures that at some point, he's going to have to walk through the pieces and make some kind of vow, some kind of promise to God. But to his shock, two things happen. First, God appears as a smoking pillar and passes through the pieces himself. And God says, Abraham, I will be your God. That's the first surprising thing. Here's the second one. God never asks Abraham to go through the pieces himself. And through all of this, Abraham realized that God was saying, if, if I don't keep my end of the bargain... I will pay the penalty. I will be torn to pieces. But Abraham, if you don't keep your part of the bargain, I'm going to step in and pay the penalty for you. Not you, I will pay it. And so, no matter how much you lapse, how many times you fall, I'm never going to give up on you. No, no matter how much you fail or fall short, I'm going to bring you into the place of blessing. And I think that's what released Abraham to obey God in faith, even though it meant leaving everything and heading into the unknown. At the end of the day, even though it seemed incredibly risky, he knew he could trust God. It's like his confidence, his assurance, it was rooted in this revelation of God's grace. This isn't a God who says, well, if you do all of this just right, if you hit this standard of perfection, if you are consistently really faithful and absolutely committed to me, then and only then will I bless you. No, this is a God of grace who says, I am faithful to my promises. If I don't fulfill my word, I will pay the penalty myself. 
And if you don't fulfill your word, I'll pay your penalty for you. It's amazing. Now, putting all this together, Jesus says in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus was saying, ultimately, he was looking to me. And as it says here in Hebrews 11, verse 13, all these people, including Abraham, died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. Do you know what? If Abraham had the power to live the kind of life he lived just in anticipation of this promised grace, how much more can you and I by looking at it directly? Abraham couldn't see it, but we can. Here's what we see. Jesus had the ultimate security, the ultimate status. But the Father came to him and said, look, if these people are going to be saved, you're going to have to get out of here. You're going to have to get out of your father's house. You're going to have to get out of your security. You're going to have to get out of your glory. You're going to have to embrace a life of vulnerability. And you know what? Jesus heard the ultimate call away from the ultimate security and he obediently left everything knowing that it would mean enduring the ultimate uncertainty, the infinite cosmic suffering of the cross. And he willingly threw himself into it for you and for me. See, through all of this, Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he hasn't already done, only infinitely more so. Jesus says, I got out of my comfort zone. I left everything. I was crushed. I did it all for you. And so, when I ask you to get out of your comfort zone, won't you obey me? Even if it costs you money, obey me. Even if it costs you human approval, your reputation, put me first unconditionally. Don't you see, all I'm trying to do is get you to build on the firmest foundation of all, to build your life on the assurance of what in my grace I've already done for you. Let me apply this just a couple of ways before I finish. First of all, if you're here and you've got doubts, you're still grappling with it, you're still wrestling and saying, I don't know if I can handle this Christianity thing. Just keep this in mind. If you doubt Christianity, it's only because you are putting your faith in something else. If you doubt Christ as your Saviour and Lord, it's only because you're putting your complete faith in something else as Saviour and Lord. At the end of the day, whether you realise it or not, you have saving faith in something. You're hoping in something or someone. And whatever that is, it won't die for your sins. It can't. It, it won't, in effect, pass between the pieces and say, if you fail, I'll pay the penalty for you. 
Why don't you simply ask yourself this? Can the thing that I am putting my faith in stand up under the weight of expectation I'm putting on it? Or secondly, perhaps you're a Christian, and yet whenever God calls you to obey and it's really going to cost you something, you're just not doing it. You, you know it's the right thing to do, but you also know if I do this, it, it's going to cost me status. It's going to cost me cash. If I do it, I, I may never get married, or I could lose all my friends. I, I might lose my reputation, my popularity. Now, every time it's hard to obey, really hard to obey, you have a choice to make. Put your faith in the creator of the universe or put your faith in created things. Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, but he knew with whom he was going. When God calls you to obey him unconditionally, it can be pretty scary because you're going out into uncharted territory. You might not have a clue where you are going, but you know with whom you're going. You're going with the one who gave everything for you. So ultimately, there's nothing to worry about. Wherever you're at today, more than anything else, the thing I want you to walk away with, the thing I want you to remember more than anything else is that the only thing strong enough, the only thing great enough, the only thing wise enough, the only thing good enough, the only thing interesting enough, the only thing true enough, the only thing satisfying enough to throw the full weight of your faith on is Jesus. Whatever challenges you're facing right now, whatever disappointments you're trying to come to terms with, whatever difficulties you are grappling with, really it's only faith in Jesus that will get you through. So please, why don't you keep running to him, clinging to him, hoping in him, finding strength in him, putting all your confidence in him and obeying him. Because at the end of the day, that is the only way to please God, and he's the only one who will never disappoint or let you down. In all honesty, he is the only firm foundation in the entire universe. Let's pray.